exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, for the first time in Egyptian history, a woman is running for president, according to NPR. Buthania Kamel's candidacy in elections expected later this year as a result of the youth uprising that ousted former President Hosni Mubarak and his ruling party. Still, many Egyptian women say they feel shut out of the new government that is emerging. They worry that unless they take bold steps, women will end up with less political clout in the new Egypt than they had under Mubarak. In national news, Ohio Governor John Kasich has ordered state universities to investigate ways for students to get a bachelor's degree in three years. They, the hope is that the three-year degrees will save students money and get them into the job market quicker, according to NPR. In Michigan news, Governor Rick Snyder signed a law today that protects doctors from lawsuits if they express sympathy for the death of a patient. Snyder says health care providers are often prohibited from saying I'm sorry when a medical procedure fails because it can be considered an admission of guilt in court, according to Michigan Public Radio Network. Snyder says the new law will allow doctors to be more supportive. Senator says studies show that when a doctor is allowed to say I'm sorry, people who are grieving are better able to heal. And on Exposure tonight, we will be talking with an MSU student who is biking across the country to raise money for his health clinic he founded in Haiti. Also in the show, we will be talking about if Xer games like we in Dance Dance Revolution can improve health. And April is Michigan Wine Month. In the studio is Carol Bush of the Michigan Grapes and Wine Industry Council. And she is here to talk about why the state is celebrating wine. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Emily. So why celebrate wine and why April? Well, some people think you can celebrate wine anytime, and you should. April is kind of a kickoff to the touring season, to the tourism season. It's also when most of the wineries start to release their new white wines from the previous vintage. Um, it, uh, it's a time that they're not very busy in the tasting rooms, so this additional promotion helps to get some traffic out there, both for the wineries and also for some of the businesses that benefit from the winery traffic, um, B&Bs, restaurants, other tourism-based businesses. And what events are happening in the state in the coming months to celebrate Wine Month, or I guess the wine, uh, wine season? There's a lot going on in April because of Wine Month, um, and then throughout the season as well. There, uh, the end of the month is a great event on Leelanau Peninsula called Sip and Savor. All the wineries um, welcome visitors with food and wine pairings. Um, in May is Blossom Days on Old Mission Peninsula. In June in southwest Michigan is the Lake Michigan Shore Wine Festival. Um, all wonderful, great events, big variety of wineries, big variety of wines available. Um, and then there are wine dinners. There are other events, festivals, things throughout the summer, throughout the fall. And what are your favorite food and wine pairings? Yikes. Okay. Um, favorite food and wine pairings. Actually, um, Spicy food with a with a sweeter wine, which is surprising sometimes, like a spicy Gewürztraminer, um, works really wonderfully with Asian food. That's probably one of my favorite pairings. Interesting. Yeah. So is Michigan, um, is the wine industry here a very strong industry for the state? It is. It's, um, uh, there are 81 wineries. A lot of people have no idea just how much, how many wineries there are and how much wine is produced in this state. Um, it, those 81 wineries contribute about $300 million to the tax base in Michigan. Uh, grape and wine together, if you add on the, um, the juice grapes that are grown, along with the wine grapes and the wineries, it, it uh, bumps up to $800 million. So it's really a great economic um, generator for the state. And interesting that Michigan ranks number four in the nation as far as uh, wine production. That is correct. We, um, in, in the last 10 years, we have tripled production of wine in Michigan. 
it's now about 1.3 million gallons that are produced in the state. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of wine. And I read that um, this week in Time Magazine that 2010, in 2010, the U.S. bought uh, 330 million cases of wine this year, <laughs> which made the U.S. for the first time the largest wine-consuming um, nation. And, and then we surpassed France by 9 million cases of wine. Um, what do you think about that? What do I think about that? It's, well, it's, I'm not surprised. Honestly, Americans are becoming much more wine-savvy. Um, the uh, beer has always been kind of the number one beverage alcohol. Wine is slowly taking away market share from that beer, uh, from the beer industry. Why do you and think that is? I think just people are feeling more comfortable with it. Most like, Michigan wineries, in particular, but a lot of wineries uh, try to make their wines very approachable, and it's just um, a lot less snobbish. Maybe you know, it's it's like I said, it's it just. It has become more approachable. People are willing to try a lot of different varieties of wine. Uh, young people, that's one of the great things about this. The, the millennial uh, generation is they are very willing to experiment. Um, that, that works well for the wineries. That's part of the reason why wine has become a lot more popular. So for the understanding that there's been quite a few wineries that have popped up even in the past year yeah. or so. Um, with this growth of wineries in Michigan and in the amount of production that we have, what how does that impact our economy in the state? Well, for every winery that opens, it just increases. The figures that we have, those that I just quoted, the $300 million for the wine industry, that was from 2005. We um, are hoping to get uh, new data, uh, new surveys done. So that in 2005, it was determined that that was $300 million. It, it has only increased, and since then, we've added another um, 20 wineries. So we we know that it's creating more, uh, adding more to the economic tax base, but uh, we don't have any numbers to be able to apply to that. And do you know if Michiganders are more apt to choose Michigan wine over wine from, say, California, France, or Italy? Some. Uh, especially those there another thing that has really been wonderful for the Michigan wineries or for any state actually is the the locavore movement you know buying local supporting your state Michigan especially because of the hard times we've been having more people are um, are trying very hard to support any business in Michigan and that certainly has helped the Michigan wineries as well so those people especially they'll buy Michigan before they'll buy anything else but um, the you know that there they we still need to have the quality there. People aren't going to keep buying it if it isn't if it isn't good to drink, and that's where the Michigan wineries are continuing to get better and better and better. And how would you say Michigan's wine industry differs or compares with California's wine industry? Well, California's huge to begin with, but um, the growing climate is different, so the wines are different. And people who are familiar with California wines sometimes um, are expecting a certain variety, for instance, a Cabernet Franc, to taste the same in Michigan as it does in California. That's not going to be the case. Michigan is a cool climate state. We have a much cooler growing season. Um, red grapes in particular don't ripen as long, so they have a um, kind of a softer uh, more fruity flavor than you might get in California, the really intense tannic, um, what they call big reds. You don't get those so much in Michigan. Um, but there are a lot of people who embrace the, the flavors of the that grape in Michigan because it is true to our state. And also, when you drink wine in in a region, eat food from that region, they just naturally go together. And I understand there's there's dozens and dozens of varieties of wine, so many that you can't even list them, but we only make a handful in the state. Talk about the types of wine that are that's made in Michigan. Well, the number one white that is made is Riesling. Um, and and a lot of folks think that it's Riesling is always sweet. I have to say that uh, this is one of my educational moments. There are lots of wonderfully delicious dry Rieslings. And so if, if someone 
wants to try a Riesling but likes dry wine, please go ahead and try it because they're wonderful. So Riesling is the number one white. Pinot Noir is the number one red. Cabernet Franc is um, gaining popularity, a lot more production of that wine. Gewürztraminer is very um, prevalent in Michigan. I've never even heard of that one. It's, it's a, it's a, well, it comes from Germany. It's, you know, it sounds like it even. Um, mm -hmm. It's a German variety that just works well in Michigan. The climate here for growing it is very similar to the climate where it's grown in Germany. And same with Riesling. Um, those grapes grow very well. They, they uh, take a lot from the soil. They take a lot of the flavors for, of Michigan into the, into the wines. So, so those are the, the most uh, prevalent and popular. So I'm curious, how would global warming affect Michigan's wine industry? It probably depends on who you talk to mm -hmm. <laughs> regarding that. Um, honestly, I don't know. It's it's not something that's really been studied mm -hmm. or or brought out into the media. So t can you talk about the idea of culinary tourism in the state and how that's been coming up as an idea to, to bring in growth and tourism? Mm -hmm. um, well, wine is, wineries are culinary tourism, and they go very well with... Um, along with other destinations that are culinary tourism destinations. There are cider mills. There are, well, restaurants are actually culinary tourism. When you travel, one of the first things you do, one of the first things I do, and many of the people I know, is I check out the food around there. If you're traveling, you got to eat, and I want to eat well. I'd like to eat local. Um, you know, I try to choose, personally, I try to choose restaurants, and many locavores do, that... Um, use local products, might have Michigan wine on their list, might have Michigan beer on their list. So um, culinary tourism is, is grow, certainly a, a, a growing trend. It's just going to continue to grow. Um, and in Michigan, uh, there is actually um, a pretty decent movement, kind of a lot of media recently in the last year about culinary tourism destinations. So Michigan is trying to become a culinary tourism destination. And can you talk about um, the involvement of MSU in, in extension in the Michigan wine industry? Actually, they have um, they have a couple of um, I don't know their titles, but but grape specialists and that work both with the wine grape and the juice grape industry in the southwest part of the state, the northwest part of the state, and then one that's housed here at Michigan State. And um, he travels all over and. Um, you know, uh, has edu they have educational sessions for the wineries, for the vineyards, on growing the grapes, making the wine, um, using the educational resources available at MSU. Uh, there's also, MSU actually has a winery called Spartan Cellars, and they have vineyard. It's a teaching vineyard, teaching winery. It's um, it's a wonderful opportunity <laughs> to be able to use the, the student resources. And I'm, I imagine that it's a popular <laughs> popular area for them to uh, put some emphasis in. Yeah, I visited there this summer, actually, and talked to his name's Paolo Sabatini. Yes, Paolo. Um, he's from Italy. I think, his, he, I think his grandfather owned a winery mm -hmm. and stuff. He's very, very knowledgeable and very, very passionate he about is. what he does. <laughs> yes, he's one of those that we are so fortunate to have mm -hmm. him connected to the wine industry. He's done a lot already. He's only been here a short time. Yeah, I remember asking him one question about wine and he went on for about 20 minutes. Yes, <laughs> he can do that. <laughs> so I'm curious, how does how does uh, Michigan's wine industry compare to the beer industry? You know, the beer industry, the, the craft beer industry has really been, um, it's, it's going almost step by, you know, step in step with the Michigan wine industry. There are about the same number of Michigan um, microbrews now, as there are Michigan wineries, and we just keep hearing, just as with the wineries, we keep hearing about, um, you know, these little brew pubs and other microbrews that open up. It's it, that too is a part of culinary tourism. You know, uh, people people love to enjoy a good beverage with their meal, and that's that's gonna that's been very good for both those industries. And so now that the summer is, is approaching finally. Mm -hmm. um, 
and people will be visiting wineries and a lot of people go up north and I know that the Leonel Peninsula is very um, popular for mm -hmm. wineries in the Traverse City area. Um, do you have any suggestions on where people may want to go with some, some great wineries that you may suggest? Uh, truly any of them. Every single one of them has a different experience. Um, some are very elaborate. There's one in particular gets a lot of press and it's worth it's worth the, the press is Black Star Farms. It's an agricultural destination is what they call themselves. They have a stable, they have a creamery, they have an inn, they have the winery, they have a distillery, they have a CSA garden, you know, they, it's a farmer's market. They've just got everything rolled into one. So that uh, we like to tell people about that because it's a wonderful agricultural experience, not just going to taste the wines, but also have, being a part of the, that whole experience. So there's Black Star Farms. There are, you know, with 81 of them, it's really hard mm -hmm. to tell. Um, it, my, my suggestion is, if you've not done it before, to pick one region and maybe visit three or four. Don't try to overdo it. There are more than 20 up on Leelanau Peninsula. You can't do that in a day. You can't do it in a weekend safely. And um, Old Mission Peninsula, now there are seven wineries on Old Mission Peninsula. You can easily do that in a day. And it's a very enjoyable. It's a gorgeous place. Southwest Michigan, Southeast Michigan, little clusters of wineries that you can visit two or three, all, you know, within 10 to 15 minutes of each other. So truly any of them is a good option. Well, in the studio is Carol Bush. She is with the Michigan Grape and Wine Industry Council, and she's here to talk about April and how it is Michigan Wine Month. For more information on the Michigan Grapes and Wine Industry Council, as well as wines in Michigan, you can visit michiganwines.com. Well, Carol, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Kyle Martin. He is an MSU student who is currently biking across the country to raise money for his health clinic he founded in Haiti. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Hi. So where are you right now? Uh, right now, we are in Manitou Springs, Colorado. Now, talk about this bike trip. Where are you? How many miles will you be traveling, and how many miles have you have you biked per day so far? Well, well we started our trip at uh, Venice Beach, in, right near Los Angeles in California, and we're going to end in Charleston, South Carolina, on May 10th. Um, so, the total voyage is about 3,000 miles, and we've already covered somewhere around 1,100. Last two weeks. Wow. So, talk about why you're biking in this health clinic that you founded. Well, there are three of us biking together. It's myself, uh, a doctor who works at the clinic in Haiti named Clayton Bell, who's from Arkansas, and another friend of ours who's named Jeff Crawford, who went to the University of Michigan. So, we are biking to raise money to support the programs at the clinic that Clayton and I founded back in June 2010. And talk about this clinic. How does it function, and why did you decide to start it? So I had been traveling to this community. Um, it's a community which is called Seguin, uh, up in the mountains of southeast Haiti. And my dad took me there for the first time when I was 12 years old on a church missions trip, and that kind of got me interested in Haiti and continuing to serve the community there. So I kept going throughout the years and got involved with the clinic that was there. 
Unfortunately, that clinic closed in May 2008. Um, for two years, there was no health facility. After the earthquake in 2010, in January 2010, uh, Clayton, who is the doctor there, got interested in reopening the facility and contacted me. So the two of us together kind of put our talents together and reopened this clinic. Can you talk about the, how normal health clinics in Haiti function and, and, and maybe how the, hi, how the health issues um, that the people face in, in Haiti differ from the health issues that we see in the U.S.? For sure. Yeah, some of the things that you see in Haiti are really similar to what you would see in the U.S., but a lot of them are, are pretty different. For example, uh, most people in the U.S. don't have worms or parasites or things like that, but that's really common in kids in Haiti. So at the schools, uh, in the community where we work, we have a deworming program where every three months we give kids medications to uh, treat them for worms. Um, but you'll see diseases like you see in the U.S. too. Like the community that we work in in Haiti has a lot of people with hypertension, with high blood pressure. Now talk about now this bike trip. How do you go about raising money through biking? Well, what we've done is we've kind of created a model where people can pledge money per mile. So we're biking about 3,000 miles, and that means that if people want to donate one cent per mile, they can do that. If people want to donate 10 cents, up to a dollar per mile, people can donate for this trip. So people pledge that money, and then after we finish the trip, then they contribute whatever they've pledged. And why did you decide to bike across the U.S. in order to raise money? That's a really good question, uh, and it's a difficult one to answer. Uh, because I think for Jeff, Clayton, and I, we're all really big athletes. Uh, we all enjoy biking. Uh, Jeff's done some bike tours through Alaska in the past, and Clayton is a, he's a pretty accomplished mountain biker. I'm probably the amateur when it comes to biking. I've only done it in triathlons. I'm more of a runner. Uh, but all of us have kind of had this idea about riding across the country and uh, last fall, Jeff kind of pitched the idea of, like, well, why don't we ride across the country to raise money for the clinic? Let's, let's take five weeks out of our lives and do this and support the people of Haiti. Wow. So we just followed through with it, and here we are. So what have you seen so far on your bike trip? Uh, we've seen the coolest thing that we've seen is just experiencing how beautiful our country is. Um, just traveling through Arizona and seeing all of the different rock formations and today even coming through Colorado we've been climbing up these 10,000 foot mountains on our bikes and just seeing these snow-capped 14,000 foot mountains it's just completely gorgeous and what has been your favorite memory so far on the trip uh my favorite memory we've been meeting lots of great people on this trip and we met this woman named Helga who is from Germany and every year she comes to the U.S and drives back and forth across the country for three months, um, just exploring, meeting people, and just kind of checking things out. And she's such a unique personality. I think she made an impression on Clayton, Jeff, and I that we, we won't forget for a long time. And what has been the biggest struggle so far on your bike trip across the U.S.? The biggest struggle for me is not being able to shower. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of times we're, we're stuck camping in really random spots. Like, we've, we've camped in an elementary school parking lot. We've camped be, behind a car dealership. Um, now, we do have friends and family along the way that we, we will stay with for some days, but we don't have it arranged for every day, so that's why we've had to camp every now and then. Wow. And how many miles per day do you usually ride? We average somewhere around 80 miles per day, although it really depends on the day. Like, when we were biking through the mountains of Colorado, we would do somewhere around 60 to 70 miles. Right. But next week, we go to Kansas, which is super flat. So we're doing over 100 miles every day for four days in a row. Wow. So you're biking. Again, I'm talking to um, medical student Kyle Martin. He is a, um, a student at MSU, and he's biking across the country to raise money for his health clinic he founded in Haiti. So talk about this health clinic. Is it just something that you decided to establish, or is it some, some, a place that you've worked at as well? Uh, this is a place that I've worked at for the last year. Uh, Clayton has kind of taken the, the head as far as doing, as far as seeing patients at the clinic, but I've taken more role in the administration and trying to keep track of 
what diseases that we're seeing in the community and what programs that we can implement so that we can help people in the community and make sure that those diseases aren't causing people to have a lower quality of life. And what do you see your involvement in the clinic in the years to come? Uh, I see my involvement as kind of continuing to help train Haitians in the community to work at that clinic so that it can be a completely Haitian-run clinic in the future. I see. And, and, and I know you said you've traveled there before, but why do you think, why did you choose Haiti? Uh, I speak the language, so it's really easy for me. Um, and the community that we work in, the community where this clinic is located, I've been going there since I was 12, and people have seen me grow up. How The biggest strength of the clinic is our relationship with the community. Like if, we, if we see people when we're walking to the market, we can have a conversation with them. And if they're having health problems, they'll invite us into their home. And um, we can see people at house visits, for example. It's kind of along the lines of the country doctor. Uh, it's kind of a romantic idea, but that doctor who has a relationship with everybody in the community and can make house calls. And it's different than the idea of the doctor that works in the, the busy hospital and only has 15 minutes per patient. Uh, and I think that's why I enjoy it. Very cool. Now, how often do you get to, do you get to visit Haiti? Um, well, I, I've been there for the most part since June 2010, and I just came back on April 1st to do the bike trip. I'll be headed back to Haiti in June, uh, and then I have to come in July to finish up medical school in the U.S. Uh, so I, I probably get to Haiti. Uh, during medical school, I've been to Haiti probably two or three times a year. Okay. And, and how has Haiti changed since um, you've been traveling there since you're, you were 12? How has it changed over the years? You know, you see some things move forward and some things move backwards. And I think that as far as infrastructure goes, um, there are some areas of the country that have new roads uh, and where people seem to be moving. But there are other areas, uh, especially after the earthquake, that are just even worse than they were back in 1998. Um, I think that the real problem right now is there's a real lack of organization as far as not just the government in Haiti, but the organizations that are working in Haiti. They need to, in my opinion, they need to work together as, a par as opposed to kind of being territorial. Uh, Haiti has over 10,000 different nonprofit organizations working there. So if the organizations aren't working together, then you just get mass chaos. And, and I know that Haiti recently has been facing a, a cholera epidemic. Um, how has that influenced uh, your clinic that you have? Well, we were located in an area that wasn't hit by the cholera epidemic until its last phase. Um, so in December and January, uh, we started to see our first cases of cholera in our community. And since we're in such a uh, rural, mountainous area, we started to uh, enact uh, education campaign and what we did is we started um, we started employing people as vendors of these chlorine water purification tablets and then we sent them throughout the community uh, and we covered man probably somewhere around like a 60 60 mile radius like a huge area of the country with these vendors and it ended up being a very effective strategy for us uh, we only ended up seeing about 60 patients with cholera and in our community, and uh, we enacted a cholera treatment center with Doctors Without Borders right near our clinic so that we could treat those patients. And after, obviously, the, or the earthquake, um, how has, has aid been coming to the country, and, and how has that influenced the, the various health clinics across the country? Um, there's definitely been a good deal of aid coming into the country especially right after the earthquake. Now, a lot of the organizations that first came after the earthquake have kind of backed off their efforts or pulled out of the country altogether um, because a lot of those countries, their only intention was to provide uh, that emergency relief. But uh, it's, it's good to see certain organizations, um, for example, like Save the Children is still working in Haiti, uh, and Doctors Without Borders, if they weren't there, then the cholera epidemic would have taken a much larger toll on the Haitian population. So there are a lot of organizations that came after the earthquake that are doing some great things in the country. And how would you describe the health care in Haiti? I would describe it as much different than health care in the U.S., which is a pretty obvious thing. But, for example, 
in the U.S., you can get blood work done at the same facility that you see your doctor. For example, if you go to Olin and the doctor says, well, I would like these tests run, all you have to do is go to the basement and you can, you know, get your blood drawn for whatever tests you need done. But in Haiti, if I need blood tests at the clinic where I work, um, then a patient has to go an hour and a half to two hours away. And then the clinic that they go to might not be able to offer those services to them, so they might have to go to another clinic. Um, so healthcare is pretty divided, and it's, it's, it can become very expensive because there's not any sort of insurance there. You're paying for everything that you do, everything, every test that you get, every uh, visit with a doctor that you make. Wow. And how many patients do you serve at your health clinic? Um, we see about uh, anywhere between 800 to 1,000 patients each month at the clinic. And since we opened in June 2010, we've seen about 7,500 patients. And how does your, your health clinic function when you have to co- go back and um, finish up school here at MSU? Now, what's cool about that is that I've been training a, a nurse that works at the clinic to kind of take over my role when I come back uh, to the United States. And this is one of the people in the community that's known me since I was a kid and someone that I really trust and who's amazingly capable. So I'm confident that she'll be able to run and do everything that I did while I'm gone. And I'm curious, um, out of the nurses and doctors that you can see in Haiti, how, what percentage of them would you say are Haitian versus from other countries? Well, the Haitian doctors that you see in Haiti are, are usually trained in Cuba. I know that sounds bizarre, but Cuba has offered the Haiti to train some of their physicians. So a lot of the Cuban-trained physicians work in Haiti as opposed to working in the United States. Now, that being said, a lot of Haitian physicians that um, become, a lot of Haitian physicians end up coming to the United States because they can earn a lot more money here. Um, it, it's interesting, the question that you ask, because there are quite a few missionary doctors and uh, doctors that work for nonprofit organizations in Haiti. I, I couldn't honestly say what proportion, what percentage or proportion of doctors are foreign or what percentage or proportion of doctors are Haitian. Um, I I guess I just don't know. Okay. Well, Kyle Martin, he is a uh, medical student here at MSU, and he is biking across the country to raise money for his health clinic he founded in Haiti. Now, Kyle, where can people go for more information, either about your clinic or to keep tabs on your bike trip? Uh, The website for our trip is bcclethaiti.com, and that's B-I-S-I-K-L-E-T, Haiti, H-A-I-T-I.com. All right. Well, Kyle Martin, best of luck for the rest of your trip, and thanks for calling in tonight. Yeah, thanks so much, Emily. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. All the gamers look at you as a gang member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Brian Wynn and Wei Peng from the Department of Telecommunications, and they are here to talk about their study into how Xer games like, let's say, Nintendo Wii or Dance Dance Revolution can improve health. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So first off, talk a little bit about this study and how it came about and what you've found so far. Well, uh, we... uh 
uh, we submitted a proposal to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to develop an Axel game because we see some of the gap in the commercial Axel games on the market, like you said, the Wii um, and uh, you know the Kinect games. Um, those games um, are great, but um, those games lack a certain level of um, uh, uh, player engagement because um, they target at casual gamers. There's not much uh, story development, uh, uh, character development, so it's hard to really get uh, hardcore gamers to play this game. So we develop uh, the uh, extra game on our own to uh, actually to increase hardcore video game players who don't access much. Um, so that's um, how we um, come up with this um, idea. And what do you mean by hardcore gamer? It, it would be explosion. Uh, For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Monday nights from 8 till 10, the Asian Invasion brings you the music from the rising sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan, and China. Only on Impact 89 FM. An ordinary day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids. And they were doing... And what do you mean by a hardcore gamer? It, it would be, uh, you know, somebody who plays games quite a bit. Um, so they they would, you know, probably self-classify themselves as a gamer, whereas typically a casual gamer is somebody who, you know, maybe goes on the Internet and plays some games or they play games on their phone, but they don't really think of themselves as a game player per se. Um, so, you know, uh, you know we, we typically use the term hardcore or just core gamer because they play, you know, several hours a week at minimum. That's interesting because sometimes when I think of people that play Dance Dance Revolution, I remember when I was in middle school, there was a kid that I went to school with who would go to Fun Time um, that has, you know, dance, that had Dance Dance Revolution there on the weekends, and he would just spend all his allowance and then just play on one of the machines that they had there, and he would just play for hours. So sometimes I can feel like there's, you know, within those niches of extra games, you definitely get some hardcore players there as well. But talk about um, the extra game that you guys developed. Okay, so as uh, Wei said, you know, our focus was on, um, you know, people that like to play games and like to play, you know, the types of games that, that require hours of investment. So these would be like the role-playing type games or the action-adventure type games. Um, so our goal was to... Um, you know, create a game that would would have a story, would have sort of this deep engagement that maybe you don't get in a typical like Wii Play title or a Wii Sports title, where you know those are, those are kind of fun novel experiences. You play them, you know, for a few minutes, or you know, and and maybe you come back and maybe you don't. Um, but you know, other games, uh, you know, like the World of Warcraft type games or uh, games like Uncharted or even. Um, you know, Mass Effect, the, the type of games that have a deeper story that, that really try to bring the player in and, and keep them in the game for, you know, hours and hours of gameplay. Um, so what we actually did is we decided to make a game that was based in ancient um, Greece because ancient Greece is just rich with mythology and, and rich with um, ideas that we can, like, draw off of. Um, and we knew that, you know, most students also, uh, you know, kind of, know a little bit about ancient uh, Greek mythology. So when we talk about Medusa, we don't have to do this big elaborate discussion of who Medusa was and where she came from. Um, so that was sort of the, the, the story basis of our world um, that we drew upon. And, you know, we, we, we drew this, the player into that um, in sort of a, a traditional um, heroic quest where they're, they need to say, it turns out they, in the game, they need to save their sister um, who is being offered up to uh, Crete, who is, uh, you're, you're an Athe Athenian and you're being, um, uh, Crete is the enemy of Athens and um, every seven years or so, Athens has to send sacrifices to the Minotaur. So that's kind of the launch of the game is your sister gets sent and you decide to go with her to try to protect her. And the game kind of, you know, spirals from there. 
So is the idea, when I think of some games like you're talking about World of Warcraft, the very, very addictive game, so is the goal to get them to almost become addicted to this game so they, they are more active? Well, we use the term stealth exercise because we don't want people to think of it as exercise. So when you pick up like a Wii Fit, you, you think of, you know, you, you go to Wii Fit to exercise. And, uh, you know, and the types of things that you do on the Wii Fit are typically exercise. You know, they have little mini games and that sort of thing. Um, but you don't really, I would say that they're not really great games as games. So, so yeah, we wanted the game to be more like a World of Warcraft type experience where, you don't. You just think about play. You think about getting to the next level. You think about advancing in the story and completing your quest. You don't think about the exercise that you're doing while you're doing it. And do who has access to play this game, and, and who has used it so far? Well, we so far we're still doing the um, uh, in, uh, research study, so it's not available to the public. So um, so far we had um, about over 200 students who have played this game. And we did some uh, experiment tests in the lab, in the kinesiology lab, to see their energy expenditure during gameplay, to see whether you know actual the actual gameplay is uh, equivalent to uh, kind of like a light light or a moderate uh, level of physical activity. Because if it's not, then we cannot call it an extra game. Um, we have to make sure that the level of uh, activity they involved in the gameplay um, will be equivalent to some light or a moderate level of physical activity. So uh, we did some of those uh, testing, and so far this semester we're doing some um, intervention study to see the impact of gameplay uh, in a longitudinal setting to see, you know, it's just not one shot, whether if people play it um, for a longer period of time, whether they can increase their physical activity in general. So how would you compare this, the game that you guys have um, created? Is it called Mount Olympus? It's, yeah, the, we actually shorten the title, so it's just Olympus. Olympus, okay. Yeah. Um, how would you compare this to... Um, games like um there was a few games out there one of the Wii games i think Wii boxing i um, mean dance dance revolution how would you um compare um how much exercise you get playing this game versus 10 you know 10 minutes playing olympus versus 10 minutes of playing Wii boxing or dance dance revolution yeah, we um, so the uh, experiment we did uh, to quantify the energy expenditure. So um, that study uh, concluded that um, the level of uh, uh, physical activity is similar to light to moderate level of physical activity. And there are a lot of published studies um, available that quantify the uh, activity level of playing Wii Sports, Wii Boxing, uh, Dance Dance Revolution, or other, other type of uh, Wii games. And their level of um, activity is also similar, um, light to moderate. But uh, Dance Dance Revolution is a um, game that's uh, uh, a little bit higher. The level of activity involved in Dance Dance Revolution is a little bit higher than other type of uh, physical activity. But our game is comparable to them in terms of you know the level of uh, uh, energy expenditure uh, people get during gameplay. And you've been mostly, um, with this study, most people that have played this game are college students, correct? Yeah, because we designed this game to target this particular uh, group, college students who play video games a lot. And why college students? Well, um, first of all, it's not just college students, but, well, um, young adults, we, we should say. Um, but, well, a majority of the young adults in the country are actually attending college, and we were actually um, uh, close, you know, uh, it's convenient for us to test the game with college students, so we kind of limit our uh, 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 participants to college students. But the game um, is um, suitable for all young adults um, ages between 18 to 25. Do you think there's a difference between um, the habits of gamers that are, uh, let's say, college age versus grade school? Um, yes. Uh, well, the well, the gameplay habits will be different. I mean, first of all, not just the gameplay habits, but the, you know, the 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 content that would be suitable for this type of audience will be uh, different. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, part of the reason that we chose college-age students is because as young adults, that's usually a big transition 
period for for people where if they've kind of led a sedimentary lifestyle or an inactive lifestyle um, you know, their metabolism starts slowing down and they start gaining weight, whereas when they're a younger age, um, just because of the nature of our metab metabolisms, as we're growing, it, sometimes it's not as much of an issue. So we wanted to target this specific age and specifically gamers who maybe lead somewhat of, a, somewhat of an inactive lifestyle, um, you know, to see how well the game engages and motivates them and, and, and gets them active while they're playing. And what have you found from this study so far? Yeah, for the intervention study, because it's still ongoing, so we don't have a, a definite conclusion yet. Um, as I told you earlier, for the uh, experiment study to quantify the energy expenditure, uh, we are uh, quite happy that our the level of uh, energy expenditure uh, during gameplay is um, similar to light to moderate uh, physical activity. But in, in actually, in some um, uh, sequence of the game, um, especially you know um, the, the 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 gameplay that involved a lot of. Um, a fighting, like uh, you know, uh, shaking off the spiders, fighting the death, those kind of uh, 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 sequence. Uh, the energy expenditure is uh, equivalent to vigorous level of physical activity, like running. And do you think that the the students that played this game, um, you said that your goal was to get them to play for long periods of time, rather than you can just pick up a game on Wii and put it down whenever you want. But the desire to to play for long periods of time, did you find that with um, people in your study that that they wanted to continue playing, that they were very engaged and and wanted to play for a long period of time? Um, we. The longitudinal study that we are conducting now will give the answer to this question, but we cannot answer oh, the okay. question now. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you think that, um, let's say, people that are either in grade school or up to college age are more apt to play extra games like Wii or your game, Olympus, um, with friends or, or by themselves? And do you think that there's a difference in, in the amount of exertion that you do if you play with, you know, just by yourself or with friends? Yeah, that was one of the original um, hopes of the, of our study was to create a multiplayer version of the game, but given the amount of budget you know that we had and the amount of resources, we weren't able to um, to do that. Um, so Olympus currently is a single player game, but we are um, seeking you know additional funding to develop a multiplayer version because certainly um, you know the the concept of of competing and or collaborating with your friends is a is a powerful motivator. Um, so, and we definitely want to try to take advantage of that. So I know in this country there's been a big issue with technology and uh, youth are, are less apt to go outside and they're, and they're more likely to be plugged into technology. And so we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, things in the press that are coming up regarding extra games. And that's how, um, you know, obesity in America is going to get fixed or how um, a way for youth to, to be active. What do you think of that idea for that being the new option for exercise? Well, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, Axel Game can fix the problem, but um, um, I would say that for, um, using Axel Game is a um, very uh, motivating uh, method for people who don't exercise at all. So, you know, it's really, really hard uh, for people who are leading a really sedentary uh, lifestyle. So the Axel Game is fun, so it can motivate them to take the first step. But as I told you earlier, the level of energy expenditure of extra game still is not um, as much as the level of uh, energy expenditure of, uh, you know, the um, like uh, running on the treadmill, especially at uh, like probably six to eight miles per hour. So we we, sh we are not advocating that we should use extra game to replace uh, other physical activity, but it certainly is the first step, especially for those people who are not exercising at all. Maybe it's the gateway drug to exercise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I I, I, lis I remember listening to a feature once where um, they were you know it was probably two years ago and they were talking about extra games like Wii and does it really help you lose weight and it was it was an adult study and one person was saying it didn't really help me lose weight but I was actually finally getting active and then that kind of inspired me to start running outside and things like that so yes the gateway drug for exercise um, and I understand that some schools are now using utilizing extra games in gym classes. What are your thoughts about that? Um, well, yeah, extra games are used in a more um, structured way 
will be more effective than um, using the exit game on your own. Uh, there are some studies, uh, uh, pu published studies, um, using um, extra games in a structured way. So, like, you ha it's not just you play at home at your own will, but um, it's used in the PA class, uh, PE class, and it's uh, it's been found to be really uh, uh, effective. It's more motivating, more effective than the traditional PE class. And have you guys seen other ways that groups or um, organizations have utilized Xer games? Well, in, I mean, uh, it's been used in the nurse um, uh, nursing facility for seniors, mm -hmm. and uh, also it's been used uh, for rehabilitation purposes. So for um, for like for physical rehabilitation and uh, physical therapy, like for instance, a stroke patient. So it, they are using exercise games, not to the um, like not like dance dance a revolution that kind of uh, exercise game, but um, like uh, we types of game. It's a uh, really a uh, motivating um, uh, rehabilitate method for them to really just get the, you know, even to get their uh, wrist to move a little bit, not like the, you know, the uh, really vigorous uh, physical activity like the Dance Dance Revolution. And how much longer will your study about extra games be going on for? Well, we're um, just finishing up the longitudinal research, um, which ends basically the end of this month, so the end of April. Then, of course, we'll have to crunch the data for a while. Um, I mean, we hope to, um, in the fall, have uh, research results to, to start, mm -hmm. um, you know, writing papers and um, presenting at conferences and things like that. Um, the game itself has been, you know, an ongoing development process throughout the whole project. Um, you know, we continually are revising it as, you know, we're finding issues with the game and as we're trying to expand the gameplay. Um, so we're, you know, pretty much continuously developing that up right to the end of the, the research. And after that, we, we're not exactly sure what we're going to do with the game. We can definitely use it for additional research studies. Um, but, you know, after investing so much time and energy into something, we would love to, to get it out there in the world. Um, we just haven't figured exactly out how we're going to do that at this point. Well, in the studio is Brian Wynn and Wei Peng from the Department of Telecommunications, and they were in to talk about their study regarding Exer Games and how Exer Games can improve health. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank, thank you. you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Monday nights from 8 till 10, the Asian Invasion brings you the music from the rising sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan, and China. Only on Impact 89 FM. An ordinary day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids. And they were doing nothing. When suddenly... That's a personal foul. Inactive activity on a sunny day. Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Let's play. And play they did. There was running and jumping and laziness was crushed. Hey kids, don't get a lazy penalty. Go online to smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you, and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, Claire Vallotton, a MSU professor of human development and family studies, is here to do a reading that will be featured in this week's Light in the Dark, Words of Life, Love, and Loss. It is an event that will take place this Thursday at 7 p.m. at the Mid-Michigan Family Theater, located in Frandor. And it is in collaboration with the Take Back the Night event. Welcome to the show, Claire Vallotton. Thank you. So talk a little bit about this event, the the light in the dark. So I guess the light in the dark was a um, 
It's the well inspiration of uh, Melissa Hasbrook, who's really organized the event and uh, has a um, a grant from the uh, Lansing Greater Lansing Arts Council to uh, do this kind of community organizing and um, arts events, and she uh, wanted a way to bring out, I guess, the the life force and um, positive. Uh, things we learn as maybe a result of our experiences. And so that's sort of like the light and the dark theme. And it also allows us to sort of, there's a, a lot of different ways you can spin that. So each of us who will be reading at the event um, have very different experiences and we'll bring each of those. So it's a sort of a, an open theme. And I'm curious, as this will be your, your reading debut. That's right. <laughs> I understand you've been a writer for a while, but this is the first time you'll be reading. And, and it's interesting because um, you're an MSC professor, again, mm -hmm. of human development and family studies. How does your work, do you think your work at all spills into your writing at all? I've thought about that. And, you know, I'm, my work is focused on understanding human behavior and development and, and how we come to be who we are. Um, and usually, in, you know, my my research, I'm looking at that sort of in generality, sort of, you know, universally, how do we come in to be who we are? Um, but when I'm writing uh, stories, I'm thinking about individuals and particulars of how do you become who you are. And so I think that's, an, it's another way for me to look at human behavior and understand uh, humans from a different perspective. And I think storytelling requires me to think from another person's perspective, which is another way to understand humans. And talk about the reading that you do tonight and how that kind of fits into the theme of light in the dark, words of life, love and loss. I'll be reading um, a, a piece from a, a larger work that I'm titling Full Reign of the Woods, which is about my childhood in a rural uh, upbringing. And um, the piece that I'm reading tonight and is part of what I'll read on Thursday is called uh, Outlaw and Order. And it's... it's um, a segment that's connecting, well, th this segment is connected to uh, another excerpt that I'll read. And it's, um, I think it was, writing the story is my way of understanding um, some, uh, some people that I grew up with and who experienced uh, sort of trauma in their own childhoods and young adulthoods and and I was trying to understand you know who they are and how they came to be who they are and so um, I think writing this it sort of I want to elucidate to understand um, and and have I guess empathy and compassion for who they are and so this story kind of I think writing the story helped me do that and understand how um, events in our lives shape who we become. We'll have about three minutes here. Okay. Would you be willing to do a, a brief reading for us? I will do a brief reading. Okay. There was no law enforcement in the little community where I grew up. Really, there was no law. Teenage boys drove drunk with no fear of their licenses being revoked. Folks grew their pot in the woods and smoked it in public without fear of being busted. We hunted on public land. We gathered fruit and firewood from the state parks. And no one ever said words like curfew or truancy. We were free, without law. But we had a kind of order, an unspoken community code. We helped our neighbors build their houses. We picked up hitchhikers. We had a volunteer fire department that could be reached by CB. And we stayed out of other people's way, for the most part. There were occasional infractions. There were reckless drivers who hit those walking along winding country roads. No police or insurance companies were ever called, but the driver always footed half the medical bills. But when there was a murder, it took the entire community to impose order. When I was a child, there was one murder that shook the heart of our little community. To this day, that murder lies quietly but persistently just under the surface of casual conversation and community celebration like a body in a shallow grave, refusing to decompose. The story of Rainbow, or rather his murder, is now a ballad whose tune is known by heart to everyone in our community, but whose lyrics change with the singer. It is not sung often, and it wasn't until I was a young adult that I had heard it all the way through. This is the ballad of Tom and Rainbow. The two men had been neighbors. They'd shared sun and they'd shared sky. Now over a few square feet of dirt, one was about to die. In 1975, Rainbow Newby was a young Vietnam vet, home from the war, and making a new life with his pretty young girlfriend, Nancy. Nancy was 19, with long, strawberry blonde hair, a guitar, and a beautiful singing voice. 
She was pregnant with Rainbow's first child. Rainbow was proud of the life and home he was making with Nancy. He and Nancy lived at the top of Whale Gulch in a home that he'd built from materials he could scrounge. He did odd jobs for whomever could afford to pay him, and many who couldn't. Rainbow's sister, Susie, had also settled in the gulch and lived on the same ridge, but Rainbow and Susie's property were separated by the property of Tom Llewellyn. Help me, the one cried silently. I'm in a murderous rage. Nobody could believe him. Indeed, nobody heard. Tom, a longtime member of the community, father of two, hadn't fared as well in Vietnam as Rainbow did. He came back crazy. For reasons no one clearly understood, Tom was deadly afraid of the Mexican Mafia. Certain they were after him. His fear made him vigilant to defend his home and property, and made his wife and children afraid of him. And the fact that no one believed him made him angry. He began to threaten anyone who dared come near his home. Rainbow would walk through Tom's property to get to his sister's place, but Tom was certain that Rainbow was an enemy in disguise, and he confronted Rainbow with a gun and a fistful of threats. Rainbow countered peacefully, hands out, defenseless. I'm sorry, Tom. I was just trying to get to Susie's house. I'll be out of your way in a minute. Get off my land. Next time I see you on my property, you won't make it out alive. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Claire Valatin. She is an MSU professor of Human Development and Family Studies. And that was a segment of a reading that she will, that will be featured in this week's Light in the Dark Words of Life, Love, and Loss event. It'll take place this Thursday at 7 p.m. at the Mid-Michigan Family Theater located in Frandor. And Claire, is there anywhere where people can go for more information that you know of? They can go to uh, dayofthephoenix.com, but day is spelled D-E-Y, Day of the Phoenix. All right, and for the Michigan Storytelling segment, thank you so much, Claire, for thank coming you, on Emily. tonight. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. An exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM.